Hello and welcome to the Ask Catholics podcast. Here's your host and stand-up philosopher, Justin West. All right. Hey, guys, it's Justin. And in this short video, I want to talk about something that a lot of people don't really think about when it comes to the Bible. Um, and a lot of people just they make an assumption. And this assumption actually is one that the Bible itself doesn't allow for. And I'm going to come about it in a very sideways way. So I'm going to first I'm going to talk about um, the Chronicles of Narnia for just 30 seconds here. Um, obviously, it's C.S. Lewis's work. And if you were to ask anybody who had read them, uh, how many books were in the Chronicles of Narnia, they would tell you, uh, almost without doubt, uh, that there were seven, right? And the way that we know that there's seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia is C.S. Lewis wrote them. And when he wrote them, uh, he wrote seven. <laughs> it doesn't get much harder than that. So the, the Chronicles of Narnia have a, a term that I don't know if anyone's ever used this term before, but I'm going to call it canonical sufficiency, meaning the list of books that are in them is sufficiently explained by the work itself or by the immediate authors. When there's one single author, you can tell you what it is. Um, now take, for example, I'm going to give you two things that you're definitely going to say, well, these aren't inspired, but understand what they are. The, the Quran and the Book of Mormon. Now, as Catholics, as Christians, uh, we find probably both of those works very problematic and, and, and dubious of the claim of them being inspired. Um, but they're both canonically sufficient. And here's why. So the Quran purports to be the revelation of an angel, purportedly Gabriel, to Muhammad in um, in, in a cave somewhere in, in Medina or wherever it was. And... It is canonically sufficient because there's one translator receiving the text and the text was received by him. So literally the angel says, sit down and write. Muhammad sits down and writes. And when the angel is done, Muhammad is done and they're done, right? That's it. That's, it is sufficient to explain its own canon. Um, so to the Book of Mormon, at least to some extent, there's actually some some fun little things we we could dive in on this one. Um, but the Book of Mormon reports to be uh, Joseph Smith goes out in upstate New York somewhere, finds a box in the in the snow, and it's got golden plates. And then through the the magic of the the umim and the thumim, and he puts his head in a hat or whatever, and he's able to 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 decode the the Book of Mormon. Uh, later he receives other revelations. You get the the Pearl of Great Price, and you get the uh, my personal favorite, the Book of Abraham, uh, which pretty much shows that he was a fraudster because it was right before or right after, but he wasn't aware of the fact that we could decode uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And he got this papyrus, this ancient Egyptian papyrus, and he uh, said he magically translated the papyrus. And it was all about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Uh, and then we cracked the Rosetta Stone and everything else. We could we could understand um the Egyptian hieroglyphs and they, they say nothing at all like what he says they say. So in my opinion, that's enough to totally discredit um, Joseph Smith as a prophet. But from a canonical standpoint, the Book of Mormon is itself canonically sufficient because he found the plates and he just translated the plates and the Book of Mormon reports would just be a translation of these plates and nothing more than that, right? Um, and obviously, being the prophet and receiving extra revelation, you know, whatever revelation he gives um, is explanatory in and of itself, right? It doesn't need an outside force to say, well, hey, these are the books. Now, contrast all three of those great fiction by C.S. Lewis and two works of world religions with millions or even a billion adherents um, that we, of course, find dubious with the New Testament. The New Testament was written 
over the course of decades, at least. Um, some estimates say it started, you know, right around the, the 40 AD period um, and ended as late as, I think, 96 AD is what I've seen for some people, assuming when John was writing some of his stuff because it references the falling of the temple. I think there's a, there's a really strong case to be made that, that John wrote his stuff in the 60s or 70s. Um, there's a lot of research out there. Um, this is not a, uh, a video to talk about that particular topic. Um, but the point is, the, the just the New Testament has multiple authors writing over the course of multiple generations. And so in and of itself, it's not canonically sufficient. Now, what would be canonically sufficient is if Jesus, as he's ascending into heaven, maybe uh, shouts down to the apostles and says, you know, hey, guys, uh, look out for these texts that are going to be written over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, they number 27 and here they are in order da, 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 um, when you find them bind them together and, and, and there's the New Testament. It'll be, it'll be coming soon to a, to a, a parish near you, to a diocese near you. Um, he didn't do that. It would also be sufficient, I guess, uh, if one of the apostles or apostolic men, um, you know, Peter, James, John, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Paul, if any of these guys would have written a table of contents and said, the spirit has spoken to me and the books that belong in the scriptures are this list of 27 books. But that didn't happen either. And in fact, if you read church history, what you'll find out is in the first century, there were hundreds of letters written. Some of them were spurious, right? We, we could tell there were some gospels written, you know, over a hundred years actually after the fact um, that were not written by one of the apostolic men that purported to be uh, legitimate. Maybe they contained some theological errors to them or, or, or whatnot or things that were that were problematic. We'll just say we, we knew the, the people who had um, who'd written some of them. But others were, were letters by early church fathers, right? Um, I know the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, for one, Clement of Rome. Um, you know, these are letters of early church fathers, many of whom were martyred. Uh, for their faith. And in the early church, there wasn't a New Testament. There were letters. And these letters were circulated to all of the different churches. And a lot of them were received and treated as scripture, right? Um, and there's actually a few of them that claim to be scripture, like the book of Revelation, that the early church had a hard time understanding uh, whether or not to actually uh, consider this uh, scripture, uh, even though it, it directly says, you know, this is scripture. Jesus says, write this, you know, take and, take and write. Um, others, like the book of Hebrews, where we just don't, we don't even know the author. There is no author listed for, for Hebrews. Uh, a lot of people suspect it might have been a dictation from Paul. Um, but again, there's no definitive answer for um, you know, who, who wrote the book of Hebrews. And so there was doubt on a lot of these books that were uh, purportedly circulated or that were actually circulated in the early church, uh, including Revelation, including uh, Hebrews. I've heard that there was, you know, wondering about whether James should have been included or not. Uh, but again, also these letters from, from Clement and Ignatius and everything else, you know, these are first century letters. Some of these men are men who were under the apostles, right? Like Luke and, and Mark, they weren't apostles, but they studied with the apostles. And of course, Luke uh, shows us them in a sense, uh, in, in the book of Acts. And so the early church didn't have a Bible, right? I mean, they had the Old Testament scriptures, and they had books that a lot of people shared, um, but they didn't have a New Testament. And in fact, Jesus never gives a command to write anything other than, of course, uh, the book of Revelation. Um, I actually got called out on that by somebody. I was like, you know, you're right. I totally concede that point, and I will own up to the fact that uh, I was being a little snarky at the time. Um, but Jesus in his earthly ministry never gives a command to write anything, and it takes decades before we get 
anything you know written and circulated amongst the church and then there's so much stuff that it's hard to know you know what is scripture what isn't scripture is any of it scripture or is it all just valuable historical documents and it took uh, a couple of centuries for the church to finally weigh in and, and make a decision and the decision resulted in the 27 books that you currently have uh, in your New Testament now here's the thing uh, it was a Protestant pastor by the name of R.C. Sproul of Ligonier Ministries who wrote this once, and this was an aha moment for me. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, but it's pretty accurate. He said, our Protestant brothers and sisters have, or I'm sorry, uh, I, uh, sorry, our Catholic brothers and sisters have an infallible list to report to have, they claim to have an infallible list of infallible books. And our secular brothers and sisters, uh, non-believers obviously, purport to have a fallible list of fallible books. So again, the Catholics think that scripture is inerrant, it's inspired by God, uh, and the list of the books that belong in scripture is also inerrant and inspired by God in some capacity. Uh, our, our, our secular brothers and sisters, he says, um, think it's a fallible list of fallible books, so I think that the books aren't inspired and the canon obviously isn't inspired either. And then he said, us Protestants have a tenuous, we hold a tenuous middle ground. He says, we believe that we have a fallible list of infallible books. And when I read that, I just kind of stopped and I paused. I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me, right? If you know that if something is scripture, then it's inspired by God, that's great. That That's a definition of what scripture is, right? But if you can't then subsequently identify this book is scripture, it's not going to do you much good, right? If you know that all mushrooms uh, in the genus, you know, death cap <laughs> are poisonous, that doesn't do you any good if you can't identify is this mushroom in the genus death cap. And I don't know my mycology very well, so I'm just making that up on the spot here, right? But there's a problem, right? If you can't answer the question, is this scripture, then you can't know that it's scripture, right? So when you say you have a fallible list of fallible books, that's that's meaningless, okay? I'm just going to be honest. That's meaningless, right? You have at best good spiritual reading, right? It, it, you should treat the scriptures, if you truly believe you have a fallible list of infallible books, you should treat the scriptures like you treat the writings of St. Augustine. Um, you know, good reading, good spiritual reading, lots of, uh, you know, maybe keen insights to be gained from that, but not something you should stake your immortal soul on, right? The only way you can have a New Testament is if there is some body out there that can answer definitively, is this scripture? And the body that did that was a group of men who called themselves Catholic bishops, and they met in a council. Uh, there's a bunch of different councils that are ratified. The first one was a council of Rome, and I want to say 389, but thereabouts, um, and a bunch of subsequent councils all the way up to, to, to the Council of Trent in the 1500s. And, you know, they believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. They believed in and practiced, you know, prayer to the saints, prayer to Mary, honor to Mary. Um, they believed Jesus, again, I just said this, Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. Um, but they had bishops, they had priests, they had deacons, they believed in hierarchy, they believed in apostolic succession. Uh, they believed in all of these things that you can still find today in the Catholic Church. And they either had that authority to make that decision or they didn't. If they had that authority, then you have a Bible, you have a New Testament. Right. Let alone and we can talk about the canon of the Old Testament. It's kind of a similar situation. I'm just using the New Testament as a way to explain this. If they had that authority, then you have a New Testament. But the problem is that church has authority. They came first. You know, they were they were existing 
well before Paul was writing letters to the church that pre-existed those letters, right? Uh, Jesus gave action commands. Do this in memory of me. Go out and baptize, right? And he never said write anything. In fact, the only, the only thing we have a record of Jesus himself writing, um, I'll give you five seconds. Can you remember? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? He wrote one thing that we have record of. When they brought him the woman caught in adultery, Jesus ignores the scribes and the Pharisees for a moment. And he bends down. He, he answers the question. They say, well, we caught her in adultery. They're trying to catch him in a, in a in an issue, right? In a, in a kind of a catch-22, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because, of course, it was illegal to kill someone or to stone someone under Roman law. Uh, but the, the Mosaic commandments said that she should have been stoned. So Jesus was either going to have to violate Roman law or he was going to have to violate the Mosaic law. Uh, and either way would be a great excuse to get rid of him. Either he's clearly not the Messiah because, look, he's violating the Mosaic law, or he's clearly uh, violating Roman law, and hey, let's, you know, turn him in. <laughs> let's get rid of him. And, of course, Jesus outsmarts them, and he says, Let whoever's among you without sin cast the first stone. So he answers their question by almost by sidestepping it. But while he's waiting for them to figure out what they're going to do, he bends down and he starts drawing in the sand. The scriptures don't even tell us what he wrote, just that he wrote something in the sand. And sand is a very ephemeral um, writing surface, right? You, you write in the sand and five seconds later, 10, 10, 10 minutes later, whatever it is, not much longer later, it's gone, especially for some middle of a town square. People walk over, the wind blows, and it's gone. That's all Jesus ever wrote. But he gave authority to men. Matthew 16, Matthew 18, his inner circle, he gives the authority to bind and loose, which are juridical powers. These are powers to bind on earth as it is bound in heaven and loose on earth as it is loosed in heaven. And in, in Matthew 16, he gives to Peter specifically that same authority uh, before he gives it to the other 11. Uh, but he gives him specifically also the keys to the kingdom, which, of course, uh, any first century Jew who understood that Jesus was making the claim to be the Davidic king would understand uh, what he was doing because the king's job was to be off fighting for his people. And Jesus says, you know, the bridegroom is not going to always be with us. The king's job was to be fighting for his people. And in his absence, the king would leave ministers in his stead. But this ministers obviously sometimes would come to, you know, butting heads against each other and, and not being able to explain uh, or, or get things solved. And so there was one minister that was elevated above the rest, and that was the prime minister. And can you guess what the symbol of the prime minister was? It was the keys to the kingdom. Uh, you can actually see a defrocking ceremony in Isaiah 22. Uh, that talks specifically about this, and it uses the authority, the key to the kingdom, and whatever he opens, no one will shut. Whatever he shuts, no one will open. It's literally the same reference that Jesus makes to Peter when he gives him the keys. So Jesus set up a hierarchical church. And the very fact that in, in Isaiah it's a defrocking ceremony where one guy's being kicked out, and the other guy's being put in as a sure peg, uh, a peg in a sure spot, and a place of honor for his father's family, right? Literally, that's what the apostles were. That's what uh, that's what the Pope was, right? That's what that's what Peter was. Uh, he was a pagan sure spot and the honor of the father, right? The honor of the father's uh, family. That's the church. That's that's all of us, right? Um, and but the fact that it's an office means it persists. What's the first thing the apostles do in the Acts, uh, in the Book of Acts after Jesus ascends, having not shouted out, you know, a list of books to be on the lookout for? Uh, the very first thing that they do is they elect a successor to Judas, and they say another must take his office. So Jesus gave commands, and those commands were for the establishment of a church that could pass along the truth to a world that was mostly illiterate. The idea that Jesus expects you to have a Bible is itself something that arose out of the practice and the tradition 
of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is what makes Scripture inspired by any means. It's the Holy Spirit moving uh, through men that that prompts them to to write as they do. But it's the church that gives you certainty. It's the church that gave you the canon. And again, either they had the authority, in which case you have a New Testament, or they didn't, in which case you don't. Anyway, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this discussion. Uh, I hope that that kind of makes sense. Uh, I want to make sure that people understand I'm not trying to, first off, downplay the Bible by any means. Um, I'm not trying to shoot the Bible in the foot. (laughs) I'm not trying to get rid of it. And I don't want to make you doubt your faith. For a lot of people, they will immediately hear this and kind of recoil. They think I'm trying to shake their faith in the scriptures. Far from it. I'm trying to increase your faith in the scriptures. I'm trying to point out a logical inconsistency that at some point somebody will point out to you, and that is that the scripture is not canonically sufficient by itself. It requires an outside body to tell you what books belong in it, as opposed to the Chronicles of Narnia or the Quran or the Book of Mormon, you know, none of which are, we believe, inspired, to be sure, to, to, to be clear. <laughs> Just want to make sure people understand that. Um, you need the church. The church came first. The church collected and bound and canonized and protected the scriptures, wrote it again and again and again, copied it in manuscripts uh, throughout the centuries, and it's the reason that we have scripture today. Anyway, I hope that you found this helpful. Obviously, feel free to comment down below if you did. Uh, if you like what I'm doing on this channel, uh, this is kind of a brand new thing for me to do here. I've been teaching the faith for almost 20 years, um, and I, I decided I should probably, uh, you know, have a have a YouTube channel where I can kind of do some of this stuff. Uh, so I'm up here I'm in my office and, you know, I work during the day uh, from a home office and sometimes I need a break. So I'm like, you know, let's let's tackle an issue. And this is an issue that I've talked with a lot of people about recently. And I just figured I should finally shoot a video on it. So, again, let me know what you think. If you like what I'm doing, feel free to like and share and subscribe uh, here on YouTube. And uh, I wish you the best. God bless you. <laughs>